Good morning and a Freilich and Hanukkah. It's wonderful to see everybody. Welcome back. Great to be in person. Great to continue to be in person. I want to thank our generous Parsons series, series sponsors for the year, Becky and Avi Katz, and family in memory of Becky's father, David Grossman. Le'iloi Nishmas David ben Menachem Manish. So the Shama should have an Aliyah. Also uh, sponsored by Rivka Yitzchak Schreiber in memory of her father, Aaron ben Yitzchak, a very special person. The Neshama should have an aliyah as well through our learning. And this year is sponsored this morning by Miriam Fox in honor of Faye Eisenberg's 90th birthday. Where's Faye? Right Faye, happy birthday! I have good news for you, Faye. They say the first 90 years are the hardest. So it's going to be smooth sailing, please God, from here. Should be healthy, happy, nachas, simcha, bracha. Gesund, together with Mari, the two of you. Big, big mazel tov, a very, very happy birthday. 90. Ooh, wow. Unbelievable. Amazing. Okay, let's get started. Today is Hanukkah, as you know, the second day of Hanukkah. A very important and auspicious day in its own right. Second day of Hanukkah, and it is also Parshas Miketz. Parshas Miketz. Where's Hami Tanabam? He told me the Shabbos will be the 80th anniversary of his Bar Mitzvah. Such milestones, Kenai Nahara, Kane, Yerbu, for more and more people. So let's, uh, let's get started. Why do we read Parshas Miketz in Hanukkah? Even before we dive into the Parsha itself, let's begin with some Hanukkah connections. The Beis Yankif of Ishbitz, Rav Yaakov of Ishbitz, the Ishbitz Rebbe says, Koran Tomin Parshas Miketz Bimei Hanukkah. We always read Miketz in Hanukkah, Shashneim Romzim Leminechad, because both of them have a similar storyline. They have the same illusion. At the end of last week's parsha, when we last left off our suspenseful story, it seemed like all hope was lost. Yaakov and Yosef rather had been abandoned by his brothers, sold into slavery, left to die, ignored and dismissed. That Yosef had been utterly rejected, his story was over. And it seemed like it was all over. The brothers went to go tell their father. They thought this was the end of the story. They thought they had found closure. They thought they had finally gotten rid of this great agitator named Yosef, their brother. But Yaakov was inconsolable. And yet it didn't seem like it was closed. Until next week's parsha, Vayigashe Lav Yehuda, Yehuda stands up. Fast forward, spoiler alert, if you're not up to next week's parsha, I don't want to ruin the story for you. But Yehuda, next week's parsha, stands up for his brother, and in so doing, repairs the damage done when they had abandoned Yosef. Binyamin, the only other brother to share a mother and a father, now they do not leave Binyamin to die. And therefore Yosef realizes they've learned their ways. And the story has a wonderful and a happy ending. Similarly, when it came to the holiday of Hanukkah, it seemed like all hope was lost. All the oil was defiled. All of the people were outnumbered. We had no chance. The, we know that oil, oil is a symbol. Can you put it in the Aaron in the back? Just leave it in the Aaron in the back. Okay, so come on in, everybody stand up. So it seemed like all hope was lost, that the Shemen... Okay, so let's put it away, come on. It seemed like all hope was lost, that the uh, shemen was defiled, was tame. There was nowhere else, uh, no other tame, no other shemen to use. Shemen oil is a symbol of is a symbol of of the Jewish people. Hashemen is the same letters of neshama of soul, and we know that just like oil, just like uh, olive, rather, when you crush it, what comes out is more precious than the olive. The olive itself does not have a great value. The olive creates shichacha. The olive creates forgetfulness. The olive creates forgetfulness, whereas the oil creates remembering. Because what comes out of the olive when it's crushed is more precious than the olive itself. And the same is true with the Jewish people. When we are crushed, when they try to squeeze us, what comes out, what we learn about ourselves, is even more precious, is even more valuable. So we thought all the oil had been defiled. We thought all hope was lost. We thought militarily that we didn't have a shot. 
that the Jewish people were going to be eliminated. So says the Ishbitz, the Bisyankif, it's the same storyline, Parshas Miketz and the story of Hanukkah. A Jew is never broken. A Jew never gives up. A Jew never feels all hope is lost. Yeish Shalomidas. The moment that you give up hope, the moment that you give up your optimism, your positive attitude and faith, then Shalomidas. It means you've lost your mind. When a Jew's of right mind, then they believe beyond all hope. They believe beyond all reason because a Jew never gives up. Okay, that is all number one. The Ishmael Tzarebbe, the connection between Parshish Miketz and Hanukkah. The same storyline. When it seems like all hope is lost, there is a rising to greatness. Yosef, all hope is lost, sold, dismissed, left to die. Turns out he's the viceroy of Egypt, saves his entire family's lives, reconciliation and reunion. Similarly, all hope was lost, there's no more oil. All hope was lost, we lost dominion, we lost the sovereignty of our land. And the next thing you know, we are back in charge. All hope is not last. As has been pointed out by many people, you gotta love the anti-Zionist, anti-Semitic, elected leaders wishing the Jews a happy Hanukkah who are totally uh, ignorant of the fact that Hanukkah reflects the Jewish presence in Israel for thousands of years and our being liberated from the occupiers of our land from thousands of years ago. So it's a beautiful thing when Ilan Omar Tlaib and the others wish Jews a happy Hanukkah, acknowledging our presence in the land for thousands of years and that they were foreign occupiers to us and we were liberated. And I guess we should say, yeah, shkoyach, thank you for that. those good wishes. We agree totally. Another connection between Hanukkah and Miketz, then we'll delve into the Parsha itself. And then we'll delve into the Parsha itself. And it's based on a Pasuk, not in Parsha's Miketz, it's based on a Pasuk in all places in Parsha's Eov. Pasuk in Parsha's Eov. Eov, we know, led a very difficult, a very hard life. Eov suffered maybe more than any other person, and he did so with faith. And the Pasuk says in, in Eov, Perikimel Pasuk Chavav, Lo shalavti, velo shakatati, velo nachti, vayavo rogez. I was not at ease, neither was I quiet, I did not rest, and yet, Vayavo Rogez, trouble came. Trouble came. This is a Pasuk in, in Eov that describes a fate and a, a state of being relentless suffering. A state of relentless suffering. It says, Eov, all I wanted was peace of mind. All I wanted was peace and quiet. All I wanted was just one day. No drama. No drama. However, lo shalavti, lo shakarati, lo nachti. I was not able to achieve no drama. All I had was drama. The Medrashab at the beginning of our parasha describes that each statement references a lack of rest and tranquility that is describing not only Eov, but it goes all the way back to Yaakov Avinu. We know in last week's Pasha, Vayeshev Yaakov, Bikesh Yaakov, Leishev Bashalva. We mentioned last week that Yaakov, who had been through so much drama, so many ups and downs in his life, so much pain and suffering, so much conflict and tension, all Yaakov wanted was peace and quiet. Can I have one day, no kvetching, no complaining, no conflict, no doctor's appointments, no doctor's visits, no waiting rooms. Can I just have one day one day of peace and quiet, and Yaakov couldn't have it. Hashem said, you want, you want shalva? That's not what this world is for. This is the factory floor. There are no recliners, there are no rocking chairs on the factory floor. This is the place we come to work, we come to grow, we come to advance, we come to make progress. So the Medrash Rabbah says, that sentiment, that sense that Yaakov also, that Yaakov wanted peace and quiet, that is another interpretation of the Pasuk in Eov. Lo shalavti, lo shakatati, lo nachti, vayavo roges is describing the life, the ambition, but the failed wishes of Yaakov Avinu. Yaakov didn't recover from the trauma of Esav, endured the lying and deceit of his uncle Lavan. Then he suffered with his daughter Dina getting kidnapped. Finally, when she was returned, he has to deal with the disappearance of Yosef. Bikesh Yaakov Leshev Bashava, but he didn't get Sheket, he didn't get Shava, he didn't get Menucha, he didn't get it all. But there's another Medrash, not here in Sefer Breshos, nor on Eov. There's another Medrash in Shmos that references this same Pasuk as describing this lack of rest, but not about Yaakov and not about Eov. Just like Yaakov could not find quiet and tranquility, so too his children, so too we the Jewish people have spent our history plagued by exiles and by enemies who oppress and who pursue and who persecute and who torture and who try to exterminate. This could be a description not only of Eov the individual or not only of Yaakov the individual, is this not a description of the state of the Jewish people? Is this not capturing all of Jewish history? Lo shalavti, lo shakatati, velo nachti. Wherever we went, whenever we went, we started a great new Tuesday night series. Began last week, Rabbi Kassorla gave a out-of-the-park talk 
on the Rambam and the Amahads. You can listen online to it. It's also streamed live. Rabbi Moskowitz is picking it up next Tuesday and then I am the Tuesday after that. And it's called The Rabbis on the Run. It's all about rabbinic scholarship while fleeing for their lives. Some of our greatest rabbis, you know, we have peace of quiet and we have peace of mind and we have high-speed Wi-Fi and we have Otsar Chachma and Barilan and we can't produce anything. And some of these great rabbis on the run, persecuted, all they had was a quill and a piece of parchment. All they had was a pen and ink. No library, no laptop, no backup copy. And they produced the Rambam. It's Mishnah Torah. The Rush runs from France to Spain. So we have an entire series on Tuesday nights called Rabbis on the Run, all the way through the Mir in Shanghai and all the way until modern times about Torah learning, Torah scholarship that was studied, that was produced while fleeing for their lives. Maybe the name of the series should be Lo Shalavti, Lo Shakatati, Velo Nachti. That all anyone wanted was peace and quiet. Give me a base medrash, give me a library, give me a study. Give me a room that I could just sit and learn and write. But nobody gets it. So this is really a description of all the Jewish people. And that's what the medrash writes. You ready? Lo Shalavti mi Bavel, Velo Shakatati mi Madai, Velo Nachti mi Yavan, Vayavo alai Rogez Be'edom. Under Babylonia, Lo Shalavti. We had no tranquility. When we were oppressed by Persia, lo shakatati, we had no quiet. When we were subjugated by Greece, lo nachti, we had no peace. We had no rest. And as we continue to experience this gullus, the fourth and final gullus that we are still in today, we find trouble by Avo Rogez. The exile of Yavan, of Greece, is what we redeem from with the miracle of Hanukkah. It's a very interesting fact about Hanukkah. It's called a gullus. We also have a measure at the beginning of Parshas Breshis. Choshech is Yavan. Darkness is the darkness of, of Yavan, of the Syrian Greeks, the Hellenists who oppressed us in the land of Israel. Isn't it interesting that it's called Gullus, even though where did the story happen? In Israel. You could be in a state of Gullus even when geographically we are blessed with the modern miracle of the state of Israel. It's a modern miracle. We have to value it, we have to say thank you for it, we have to praise Hashem for it, say halal v'hodah for it, but we can be in Gullus even when geographically we've already begin, we've begun to feel the aschalta de Geula. We have the beginning of the redemption and that we're back in the land, but it's still called Gullus. And how do you know it's still called Gullus? Because look at Yavan, look at the story of Hanukkah. Hanukkah is Gullus Choshech, Gullus Yavan, even though it took place in the land of Israel. So lo shalavti mi bavel, lo shakatati mi madai, lo nachti mi yavan, v'yavo alai rogez is be'edom. So the one that we're celebrating today, Hanukkah, Yavan, is characterized as what? Yavan is characterized as velo nachti, lo nachti. The Maccabees defeated the Syrian Greeks and the Yavanim and reinstated Jewish sovereignty, Jewish land over the land of Israel. Yavan's goal was not to annihilate us. They assaulted us spiritually. That's why there's no mitzvah of Suda on Hanukkah. Unlike Purim, where there's a Mishta and Suda, you have a big festive meal and you give gifts of food and drink to one's neighbor. And the thing centers around a physical celebration. Hanukkah, in contradistinction, is not a physical celebration. It is a spiritual. It's halal v'hodah. There's no obligation of a meal on Hanukkah. Why? Because Purim Achashverosh wanted to physically annihilate, exterminate, eliminate the Jewish people. Hanukkah, they wanted to do something different, in some ways worse. They welcomed us to assimilate and to integrate and to shed all of our values and all of our ideals and to become one of them. They assaulted us spiritually and they tried to get us to assimilate. Ancient Greece, what was it they wanted us to assimilate to? Ancient Greece worshipped beauty and form. They introduced the world to the idea of the Olympics, a competition of perfecting the human body. They worshipped external superficial beauty, the aesthetic. Their culture was the ultimate in vanity. They emphasized the external, the appearance, the superficial, the surface. Jewish people began to assimilate. We were invited to assimilate. That was the gullus. We were being influenced and we likewise began to place disproportionate focus on beauty and attractiveness. So therefore the Medrash says, Velonachti. Because you know what happens? You know what happens when you're constantly pursuing vanity and beauty and you're trying to keep up? We are in the capital of the United States of America, Palm Beach County, of being in denial of our age. Denial of our age. I've had people say to me, Rabbi, you should get hair plugs. You could still have a full head of hair. Color your hair. You look uh, fully gray 
I'm not that old. I'm not as old as I look. But I say, what's the point? What's the point? Vanity? This is the, what the Rebona Shalom did. So yes, there are opportunities and gifts today. Cosmetic surgery and Botox and cosmetics and all kinds of treatments people go through. And I'm not criticizing, I'm not analyzing halachically. It is a halachic discussion, volunteering or elective surgery. And there are opportunities, there are gifts. Akash Baruch Hu's give us instruments and tools. Beautiful, wonderful. Take advantage, feel good about yourself. However, you know what happens? When you live a life of vanity, when a person lives a life that they're consumed by how they appear in the mirror and they appear to others, and their happiness and their satisfaction and their peace of mind only comes when they think that they meet the expectations and the beauty of others, that they're trying to freeze time and look the way they did 30 and 40 and 50 and 60 years ago, then you know what happens? Vilonachti. You can never find rest. You'll never be at peace. You're always trying to look younger and younger, more and more beautiful, to reverse aging and reverse time. And when you're consumed and when you're stuck in that mentality and that attitude, Vilonachti. You can't turn back time. You can't turn back time. Vilonachti. If you want a peace of mind and rest, then be beautiful. Put oneself together. Be attractive without being attracting. But at the end of the day, be grateful that you're alive and grateful to look that age and grateful for all that comes with the wisdom and the family and all that a person has achieved because otherwise, otherwise a person simply has no peace of mind. They have no peace of mind. You know, there were studies that showed that last year, I wrote about it, there was an enormous spike in cosmetic surgery and Botox treatments. You know why? Because people spent an entire year looking into Zoom. So when you have the luxury, you look in the mirror for a minute in the morning, and then you don't see yourself the rest of the day, you don't feel bad about how you look. But when we were quarantined and locked down and distanced, when the other only way to study was to be on Zoom, that's why everyone turned their cameras off. They were sick and tired of how they looked. What about us? What luxury do we have? We rabbis who have to look right in the camera and still see ourselves. Nebuch. It's a miracle we haven't broken any cameras yet. So velonachti. So because people spent their, the only way you weren't with people, you were on FaceTime. On FaceTime, there's another screen. You see yourself. So people couldn't see themselves. They couldn't be happy. Velonachti. If a person can't be happy, what could you do? What could you do? Not everybody could be like Faye at 90, look like 30. You know? Kenai Nahara Faye. Kenai Nahara. But if you look like, you don't look like, if you look like 90, not 30, like Faye. So you look like 90. Whoever knew a 90-year-old when you were growing up? You look like 90. Walk around with a badge of honor and pride. I'm 90. Should look 90. Can I know Baruch Hashem you look 90? Otherwise you're robbed. When you care too much about how you look and when you are so consumed and you're trying to chase something that's fleeting and running away from you because age is not something that you can stop, then you're robbed of menuchat nefesh. There's no serenity. There's no peace of mind. There's no happiness. When we are consumed by Yavon, then the Medrash tells us Happiness is the result of contentment. Serenity flows from a sense of satisfaction. And when you're never satisfied, you're never content. And you're trying to chase something that's fleeting and elusive, velonachti. You can't have any peace of mind. We recovered our sense of menucha, our capacity for contentment when we defeated Yavan, when we defeated the worship of beauty. But that's not the end of the story. We celebrate the defeat of these values, and yet our rabbis embrace those same values. So I don't understand, which is it? Is beauty vain? Sheker hachein. We sing on Friday night. Beauty is vain. Is beauty vain or is beauty valuable? Which is it? The, Medrash, the uh, Mishnah and Megillah, at the end of the first parrot, quotes from Shimon Gamliel. He said, the Greek is the only other language other than Hebrew that you're allowed to write a Sefer Torah in. You could use the osios of Hebrew. You could write in, in Hebrew script, or you could use Greek. And why are you allowed to use Greek to write a Sefer Torah? It's a kosher Sefer Torah if it's written in Greek. Why? Say Chazal, because of its beauty. Oh, it's so beautiful. Since it's so beautiful, we embrace it, we can use it. Moreover, Yavan, the Greek empire, is the result of Noach's bracha to his son. Noach had a son, Yefes, and Noach gave his son a bracha. Yafta lukim liyefes. May Yefes's boundaries be extended. So Yavan, the descendants of Yefes, extend their boundary and their empire, and their namesake is characterized by Yofi. Yafta lukim liyefes. Yefes is Yofi, is beauty. So is beauty vain? Or is beauty valuable? I'll throw in a third question. This very holiday we're in right now, Hanukkah, in which we celebrate the defeat of the culture that was consumed by the pursuit of beauty, is the holiday that is most associated with the concept of Hidr Mitzvah. 
Nobody in this room lights, lights one candle every night. Nobody. You'd fulfill the mitzvah, light one candle each night. Genuk, shine, you're done. I don't know a Jew alive, the most assimilated, secular, unaffiliated Jew who keeps Hanukkah still knows that they light a candle consistent with what night it is. Nobody lights one candle every night. When we light more than one candle every night, what are we fulfilling? The mitzvah of Hidr mitzvah. What is Hidr? To beautify the mitzvah. What? The very holiday that we defeated those who were consumed by the pursuit of beauty, we more than any other holiday have a concept of Hidr mitzvah, have a concept of beautifying the mitzvah. Not only do we have mahadrin, we have a third level of mahadrin mina mahadrin. Don't just beautify. Your menorah has Botox, your menorah has cosmetic surgery, your menorah has liposuction, your menorah has the menorah as every mahadra, mahadra, mina mahadran. Our menorah gets every treatment possible. Is using every cream, every everything possible. So which is it? Is beauty vain? Is beauty valuable? What's the answer? So the answer, because I want to get into the parsha, the answer is that we both value beauty and form, but for completely different reasons than the Greeks. The Greeks worshipped beauty as an end unto itself. For the Greeks, yofi, beauty, the aesthetic, the superficial, the surface, was an end on its own right. They saw it as totally independent value unto its own self. We also embrace value and form. We see it as important, but only as a means, only as a vehicle to transform the mundane, to connect with our Creator, to represent ourselves with dignity and with class, to be royalty, the children of the Almighty. We appreciate beauty as one of the creations of Hashem. And just like we have all kinds of disciplines in order to connect with Hashem, we connect with Him through math and science. We connect with Him through the natural world. We connect with Him, of course, through the sacred Torah, His diary. And we connect with Him through beauty. It's one of the disciplines of the world. So we don't worship it on its own right. It's a means towards connecting with Hashem. And that is the fundamental difference between us and the Greeks. Not a coincidence. The Greeks said, you're not allowed to do bris milah. We'll get into Mirz Hashem. Among the three things the Greeks outlawed was bris milah, circumcision. Because for them, the beauty should never be violated. The body should never be violated. The body is beautiful. The body is a sculpture. The body is an ends unto itself. The Olympics, we compete to have the most perfect body. What are you doing cutting off a piece of the body? But for us, the body is not an ends. The body is a means to elevate the soul. The body is a clea, it's a vessel that houses the neshama. For them, beauty is the goal. For us, beauty is the bridge that joins the sacred and the profane. It is the channel between holiness and mundane. The Sachet Sheva Rebbe, the great Shemi Shmuel, explains that to truly appreciate Noach's blessing to his son Yefes, you can't just quote half the Pasuk, Yafta Elokim Li Yefes, to expand the boundaries of beauty. How does the Pasuk end? Noach says to his son, Yafta Elokim Li Yefes, V'yishkon Ba'ale Shem. When is beauty important? when it dwells in the tent of shame. Shame is spirituality. Yeshiva shame ve'ever, shame at a yeshiva. We are the progeny of shame. We are the spiritual legacy, inheritors, ambassadors of shame. There's a place for beauty. But the yefes, the beauty, the yofi, has to be yishkon ba'ole shame. It has to be part of a greater ambition of shame, the greater goal of connecting to Hashem. And so this holiday of Hanukkah seems contradictory it seems paradoxical, but it's not. We reject beauty on the, on the one hand, when beauty is the ends, when velonachti, when the pursuit of beauty, when the pursuit of the superficial and the surface, when the pursuit of vanity paralyzes us and it robs us of our happiness and our serenity. When velonachti, when we can't get a rest, but when viishkon ba'ole shame, when we use beauty to have a more beautiful kiddush cup, a more beautiful Shabbos table, more beautiful Yontif table, more beautiful menorah, more beautiful Lulav and Esrog, more beautiful Tefillin. When we embrace beauty, not as an ends, but as the means to help uplift and enrich and elevate our spirituality, then that's something that we, that we accept. Torah tells us that Yosef acted as a Na'ar. He was a Na'ar. What's a Na'ar? An adolescent. He was immature. He was immature and unsophisticated. What was it about him that made him immature and unsophisticated? What did he do? He played video games all day. What made him so immature and unsophisticated? He couldn't get out of bed. He was late to school and to minion. So Rashi says, you know what made Yosef immature? He was a na'ar because he was consumed by looking in the mirror and fixing his hair. He was consumed by beautifying his appearance and drawing attention to his attractiveness. 
That's the act of an unsophisticated, immature person. A child is consumed by how they look. An adult does the best with what they have, and then they get on with their day. An adult does the best with what they've been given, and then they say, I want my spirituality to shine. I want my soul to shine. I want my personality to shine. I want the difference I make in this world to shine. That's the, that's the most important. That's the most important. So that is this holiday. When we constantly have to keep up with the latest styles and fashions and fads, when we whittle away our savings and go into debt in the pursuit of vanity, then lo nachti zugalas yavan. One of the lessons, one of the messages of Hanukkah that we celebrate is to defeat the voice of Yavan within ourselves. The voice of Yavan. Again, embrace the tools, the instruments, embrace the treatments, embrace what's available. I'm not sitting in judgment and I'm not telling you that it's wrong, but I'm telling us that it has to have a context. Velonachti, do not let it rob you of your serenity, your peace of mind and your happiness. You know, you're allowed to light the Hanukkah candles from Shkia, we light from sunset. And how long, if you don't light at sunset, how long do you have to light the candles? The Gemara says, Until people are no longer walking around in the marketplace. There have to be people who see the lit candles in order to achieve the goal of Pirsume Nisa, in order to achieve the goal of publicizing the miracle. If no one sees it, you haven't publicized the miracle. People have to be walking around. So we shared a Sfas Emes in, the, in my article last week. The Sfas Emes says, We'll come back to it this morning as well. But I want to tell you, Moshe Leib Sosavar, the Helig Sosavar says, What's the shuk? The shuk is the market. The shuk is the place that you're buying more beauty products, you're buying more fashion clothing. You know how long you have to light the menorah? Light the menorah. Don't go to Town Center Mall for Hanukkah. Don't go to Neiman Marcus or Nordstrom's for Hanukkah. Disconnect from Amazon Prime for Hanukkah. For eight days, lo nachti, have some menuchas hanefesh. For eight days, say, I don't need more things. I don't need the latest clothing. I don't need the latest treatment. I don't need the latest. For eight days, have some menuchas hanefesh. Do not suffer the gullus of Yavan of v'lo nachti achetichla regel min hashuk. Let's avoid the shuk for the eight days of Hanukkah and find the menuchas hanefesh that we crave and not be a na'ar like Yosef was a na'ar who was so consumed only and exclusively by his appearance. Okay, let's start the Parsha class. Page 222, in the Art Scrolls, the privilege of reading Parshas Miketz, or Miketz, more appropriately pronounced. Says the Parsha, It was the end of two years to the day, Paro was dreaming, and in his dream he was standing over the river. Paro is dreaming, and the first dream places him standing over the banks of a river. Two years. What was the two years from? So the Medrash Breshis Rabbah tells us, Kate Sam Lachoshech, Zman Nasan Liyosef, Kama Shalom Yasa Ba'afelu Beis Asurin, Kevin Shigia Kate, Chalom Paro Chalom. Hashem created an end to the darkness of Yosef's life. He said, You're going to be in prison, you're going to be incarcerated for two years. When the two years to the day came up, then Hashem said, it's time for power to dream because you're out of there like Vladimir. It's time for you to be able to be liberated from prison, from incarceration. Why did he spend two years in prison, by the way? Why didn't he get out earlier? So we know, because at the end of last week's Pasha, when he reminds the Saramashkim, please remind Paro about me, he should not have relied so heavily on a human being. And because he used two words, because at the end of last week's Parsha, he used two words to remind him, that, uh, to, to request of him, that he would remember, because of the double language that he used, he spent two extra years, two years in prison. Had he not done so, how many years in prison would he have spent? So most people assume the answer is none, zero. But that's not correct. Yachronim point out why. He had to say it once. He had to say it once. So, in other words, sorry, if, had, if he had asked once, please remember me when you get out, would he have spent one year in prison or zero? He would have spent zero. Why wouldn't he be accountable for saying it once? Because you have to do your hishtadlis. We spoke about that, the Ramban's introduction to the Pasha a couple weeks ago was the balance between Amuna and hishtadlis. Faith and effort. We have to put in our effort. So Yosef had to do his advocacy, he had to do his effort, but there's such a thing as excessive effort. When you put in too much effort, 
then you lack faith in Hashem. You could have excessive faith and too little effort, excessive effort and too little faith. Like the three bears, you got to find just the right amount. So the Medrash says, this was to the day, this was to the day, two years that Hashem said, you're going to spend two years incarcerated in prison. I'll let you out after two years. So Paro had to have his dream. Now the Medrash is somewhat confusing. Divra Medrash, Adayin to Unim Biur. The Medrash needs explanation. Shekein Lemarosheh, Parak Varcholomus HaChalomos, Yosef and Adayin Sha'obabes HaSurin. Why do we associate Yosef being liberated with prison two years to the day when he was incarcerated? It's not true. It was two years to the day that Paro had his dream, but Paro's dream was not the day that he was let out. Why does the Medrash characterize that once Paro had his dream, Hashem had ended the darkness? Hashem had ended the servitude. When Paro dreamt, where was Yosef? He was in prison. So what do you mean? Paro's dream represents the end of Yosef's imprisonment. In the middle of Paro's dream, while he schluffed in his he definitely had cotton sheets. He had Egyptian cotton, no? For sure he had Egyptian cotton. I don't know how many, what do they call that? How many threads Paro had? However many threads he had, that's how many threads he had. I don't know what kind of pillow he had. We'll leave that out, whether he bought his pillow late at night on from television ads. I don't know what kind of pillow, but he definitely had Egyptian cotton. So Paro's fast asleep in his bed, having multiple dreams, and where's Yosef? There's no Egyptian cotton in prison. So what do you mean, Kate Sam Lachoshach, while he was still in prison? So Chaim Vulcan, Mashkiach Vateras Yisrael. So this appears in this beautiful sefer I've been sharing with you called the Sitcha Elyon, and he says something very fascinating. He says something very, I find, inspiring, very uplifting. We have a halacha when when a rabbinical court has sentenced a person to death. When a person violated a capital crime and they're due to suffer capital punishment, they have a status of a gavra katila. A gavra katila means they're walking dead. They're already dead. So much so that it's an interesting halacha question. If you murder somebody who's on death row, have you actually murdered? If you walk up to a corpse, this is a deeply disturbing thing to do. You're a deeply disturbed person. But if you take out a gun and shoot a corpse, Take out a knife and stab a corpse. Are you liable for murder? No, you kill someone or something who's dead, you haven't committed an act of murder. So what if you murder somebody who has been sentenced for capital punishment? Is it an act of murder, halachically? So the Gemara has a language, gavra katila, that once a person has been nigzar, once a person has been established that they're going to be put to death, they're adam harug, they're the walking dead. They're a corpse. They happen to have a heartbeat, but they're already a corpse. They're already a corpse. So what do you see? You see that once something is destined to be happen, to happen, it already has the status as if it already happened even earlier. At the moment something is concluded it's going to happen is when it really began to happen. We saw this last week. Was it in Parsha or Amunashir? I don't remember. But we said that who was born in Padana Ram? said he wasn't born in Padana Ram. He was born after. No, but that's where Rachel davened for him. Since that's where she davened, that's where it's as if he was, the idea of him was born there. So the beginning of his being born already was there. Binyamin was already there. Similarly here, when a person is sentenced to death, they're already dead, even though they haven't yet gotten the chair. They're already dead, even though they haven't been put to death. So it says of Chaim Volkan, the same thing here is true. Kosh Baruch Hu says, Paro's dream is the catalyst that's going to begin the process of Yosef's liberation from prison. So even though he's still in prison while Paro is sleeping and dreaming and is caught in Egyptian sheets, still, that's already the beginning of his freedom. That's the beginning of his freedom. And what we see from here is the same is true with us. When we set our mind and when we become determined and when we, when we conclude that we're going to be or do something, it's as if it's already done. It's as if it, we still have to do it. Doesn't mean you're off the hook of doing it. But when we really set our mind to something, when we've concluded something, when we become determined to do something, it's already done. Yosef was already out of prison when Paro was dreaming. What do you mean he's out of prison when Paro was dreaming? He's sitting in prison. Check the surveillance camera. He's sitting in prison. The answer is, since Paro's dream was the catalyst of his getting out, Ke'ilu, he was already out, even when he was still there. So you see how rewarding it can be, how enriching it is, how motivating it is 
that just being determined to do something carries us a very, very long way. The word for will in Hebrew is ratzon. Ratzon is our will, is what we want. Ratzon, the root of the word ratzon is ratz, is to run. Just like I get from point A to point B faster when I run, the stronger my will, the more determined I am, then the more likely I am to conclude what I pledge, what I promise, to get from point A to point B. Okay, moving right along. Perek Mem Aleph, Pasuk, Tes, Zion. So power-wise, these dreams, we're not going to focus on them. We have in previous years. And as always, I encourage you, you can listen to previous years. Parsha Shiurim online to uh, review what we did not cover today. So he has these two, he has these two dreams. Perek Mem Aleph, Pasuk, Tes, Zion. Torah says the following, So what happens? Paro brings in his chartumim, they're unsuccessful, nobody's able to accurately interpret the dream to Paro's satisfaction. We talked about last year or two years ago or three years ago, what was Paro dissatisfied with and what did Yosef do in his interpretation that none of them had done? And what right did Yosef have to do it? We talked about that previously. So Paro's dissatisfied with their interpretation. Yosef, uh, so Yosef is summoned. They go retrieve him from the pit, shave and a haircut, change of clothing, they bring him to Paro. Paro says, Yosef, nice to meet you. Shalom Aleichem. I had a dream and nobody could interpret it. You know what I heard about you? I heard a rumor about you. That you're able to hear a dream and then come back with a legitimate, accurate, authentic interpretation. Is that true? So they pull this guy out of prison. They put him in front of Paro. Paro says, Paro is the, the Egyptian empire at the time is the strongest empire in the world. Paro is the most powerful man on the globe, on earth. This individual, Yosef, who had been rejected, dejected, despised by his family, left in a pit, sold into slavery, falsely accused, languishing in prison, has a big moment now to shine. This is it. And what's his moment? Paro says to him, I heard about you. I heard about you. I heard about you that you uh, can interpret dreams well. And what does Yosef answer? Vayan Yosef. So if you're Yosef, what do you answer right now? Yeah, thank God. I, 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 listen, I'm not showing off. I'm not flexing. But it's true. I'm a pretty good dream interpreter. I have a lot of other faults. But when it comes to interpreting dreams... I can compete with the best of them. How can I help you? I'm here to serve, Master. I'm here to serve, Paro. I'm here to serve, Your Honor. I'm here to serve, Mr. President, Mr. Prime Minister, Mr. Ruler of the world. I'm here. Yeah, it's true. Pretty good. I have that gift. What can I do? What does Yosef answer instead? <coughs> Excuse me. Vayan Yosef is parallel more. Biladai. He says, What? You heard, you heard that I interpret dreams? Nah. Biladai, it's not me. Elohim Shlom Paro. Ooh, all of a sudden he's running a discovery seminar. All of a sudden Yosef is playing the Chabad playbook. All of a sudden he's opening a new Chabad house. All of a sudden it's Shlomo Karbos house of love and prayer. He's been languishing in prison. He's been languishing in prison. Hopeless, helpless, despondent, no future. No opening, nothing. He finally gets his chance. Paro says, I heard about you. I may need you. The ruler of the world, most powerful man on earth. Nah, Billa died. It's not me. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not good at this. Says the altar of Kelm. His palus at Suma Mashapasik Zemal Amednu. Louis Hatzel Odmilo Diacha Yakros Advarm Shanchelakash Borch Bituva Man Taras Lomo. Bodiana Niflosa shall be super of the Yeshua Limina Noshi. Shambas of Domadil on a Torah Malas Achinach Shazer Yakov Avinu Nora Maod. Whole Torah is worth it for this one word, Biladai. Torah is teaching us everything about our character, everything about who we're meant to be, everything about how we're meant to behave. Yosef is kicked out of his family home. He's 17 years old. He's thrown into the pit with snakes and scorpions. He's sold to the Arab merchants. They sell him to Potiphar. He rises there for 10 years in his home. Now he thinks, 10 years. He's the CFO of Potiphar. He's the CFO of a Fortune 500 company. He's the number two in the company. He's got options. He's a billionaire. He's a Potiphar. And what happens after 10 years of Rizaka? He gets falsely accused. He's thrown into prison. 
loses it all. Has to declare bankruptcy. Every headline, he's smeared, his image is ruined. He's sitting two years languishing in prison. He's sitting there one day. I don't know what he's doing in prison. He's, he's benching, he's lifting weights, he's playing basketball in the field, he's reading in the library. I don't know what Yosef's doing in prison. And all of a sudden, someone comes in and says, You, young man, come. Shave, haircut, here's a change of clothing. We're going to the Oval Office. Going to the Oval Office? He comes into the palace. So this altar of Kelm says, you see the impact of Yosef's education. You see, if Yosef were to stop and think, if Yosef were to be calculating in that moment, he never could have answered this way. He would have done what was best for him. But he was so ingrained that so instinctively, so intuitively, so naturally did Yosef answer. Yosef was so committed to truth. Yosef was so educated and conditioned to be humble and modest. Really, if he were calculating, he would have said, my entire best chance of being saved is by saying it's me. But he doesn't. He says, I don't know what you're talking about. It's not me, it's God. I'm just an instrument. I'm just a vehicle for God. I've had good luck. I've been able to interpret dreams, but you know, I mean, again, ju- just to give you a metaphor for this, could you imagine that somebody's sold from their family in a pit, rises to greatness, then falsely accused, languishing in prison, is brought to the king, and the king says, I need surgery. And I heard you're the best surgeon there is. I understand that you have 100% success rate with your surgery. My understanding is that you're the best surgeon there is. I'm not such a good surgeon. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you've heard. The truth is, I have a hand that God directs my hand, and so far he's directed it well. Are you out of your mind? Are you crazy risking it all? This is your shot. This is your chance. That one word, Bil Adai. That one word, Bil Adai. But sometimes in that moment of truth, we have the opportunity to define our entire lives. Will he be humble? Will he be modest? And will he be true? And he tells the story of Yerucham Levavitz, tells the story about a bachar, a new young man who enters the yeshiva. And one day in Shir, he asks a bam kasha. He asks a gavaldiga, a great question on the Rebbe. The Rebbe gives Shir and he raises his hand and he asks, ah, but the Gemara over there, but Tosos over there. And the whole students, everybody else, all of his colleagues, wow, this new young man, his question, he's an Eloi, he's an Eloi, awesome. Wow, what a super genius. And then he says, I, I saw the question in Rabbi Kivager. Rabbi Kivager asked the question. Everyone says, ah. Everything we thought about him, it just turns out it's a Rikiva Eger. It's just a Rikiva Eger. So that boy is tempted to say it was my question, it was my kasha. But it's a moment of truth for humility, for honesty, for authenticity. It's a moment of truth. And that's what Yosef ingrained with us in this one word. Wow, what a powerful message, biladai. That one word in the Unklus translation of it, biladai. In that one word, it says so much. Perak memalat pasak mem dalet. So paro, Repeats the dreams, Yosef interprets them, he interprets them to Paro's satisfaction. And Paro says, Vayomer Paro Yosef, on page 228. I'm placing you on all of Eretz Mitzrayim. Perak Memal, sorry, Pasik Memdalat, keep going. I'm putting you in charge of all of Egypt. Yosef takes his ring off and he puts it on Yosef's hand. He dresses him in royalty. He calls him a new name. He calls him Avrich. He says, uh, Avrich, which really is bracha. You're the source of bracha. You are a source of blessing to me and to this country. And he places him over all of Egypt. And now he says to him, I am Paro, and without you, no one can raise their hand over all of Egypt. I'm Paro. And over, without you, nobody could raise their hand over all of Egypt. Ani paro, ubeladecha. Yosef goes from 17 years old, he's a shepherd. By the way, last week, remember when I talked about shepherd? Nobody's kid comes home and says, I gave up medical school, law school, I'm not taking the accounting exam, I'm going to be a shepherd. I got an email a couple hours after the parashish year from somebody whose child was poised to go, I think, to medical school, but decided, first they wanted to know the experience, so they went to Israel and they spent a month shepherding. And they attached two pictures of their son, with a hass cap, with a flock of sheep behind him, 
shepherding the flock. So you never know what you say and you never know what you're going to find out and what you're going to learn. I, I want to take a month off. I could use a month with some sheep, just sheep. Sheep don't talk back. Until sheep learn how to write an email or a text message, a critical, uh, I could use a few days with some sheep. Anyway, so Yosef is the shepherd. Yosef's hanging out in the field with some sheep. Next thing you know, 17, he's in a pit. He figures out how to run Potiphar's home. Next thing you know, he's prison. Next thing you know, he is the secretary of the treasury. The next thing you know, he's in charge of the entire economy, not just of Egypt, but it's the strongest economy of the world. And many commentators want to know, Now, again, this is a question that was asked previously. After we've lived through what we've lived through and seen in our time, you don't have to have a competency, expertise, experience. You don't have to have risen through the ranks to be appointed the top in the land. But leave that editorial commentary aside. Previously, before anyone knew that or saw that to be a fact, they wondered, how is it that Yosef, who has no experience, he's no experience, and now he's running the entire country? How could it be? He didn't go to college. He didn't have an undergrad. He didn't go to graduate school. How did he do it? How did he do it? Hayabachar yeshiva, shekol iskai b'tor v'avoda. Till 17, he's learning in his father's base medrash. Then he's a shepherd in the field. Then he's running Potiphar's modest house. And then he's been in prison. What in his resume made him qualified to run the entire Egypt? What made him qualified, but moreover, what gave him the confidence to run the entire Egypt? So Rabbi Yerucham, Mashkiach of the Mir, Rabbi Yerucham says, how did he do it? The answer is Yosef led his entire life with integrity. Yosef was careful and cautious his entire life to be honest to have integrity, to never cheat, to never cut corners, to never rationalize, to never justify. And more important than any other qualification, you could have a million initials after your name and before your name. You could have gone to countless graduate schools. You could have worked and served in countless positions in countless companies. But if you're not honest and you don't have integrity, if you don't have the core character, then you're not gonna be good. And you can have the core character traits you could have honesty and integrity, fidelity to truth. And then even without the other training, you'll be able to rise to the occasion. So essentially says Rav Yerucham, the question was Yosef wasn't trained for this. What on Yosef's resume made him eligible or qualified or confident to do it? And the answer is only all of Yosef's life. Everything about Yosef's life, his attitude to punctuality and to time, his attitude to charity and to giving, how he kept his financial books and his own his own money, his attitude towards Lashon Hara, his integrity, his honesty, his relationship with others, how he led his entire life made him, in fact, qualified and appropriate. We're flying through the partial like we've never done before. Next page, page 230. What happens? Yosef has two kids. Yosef has two children born to him by his wife, Asnas, his wife Asnas, and who is Osnaf's parents, by the way? We, we mention this every year. Potifera. Familiar name? Who's his mother-in-law? Who's his shvigar? Uncomfortable Pesach Seder? Uncomfortable Thanksgiving dinner? I think so. Okay, I don't see a lot of people address that, but it's a fascinating development in the story. Anyway, so he has two children. By shame. Yosef names his eldest child Menashe. The second name is Ephraim. Why? So Menashe is why. God has made me forget all my hardship in all my father's household. The name of the second is Ephraim. God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. How could Yosef say that he forgot everything about his childhood? He names his first son Menashe, grateful to Hashem, he's caused me to forget all of my hardship, and here I am, far removed, haven't seen my brothers, my father, thank God I'm over them. 
Thank God I don't remember them. Thank God they're not part of my consciousness or my active memory. And I name my son Menashe that thank God I've been able to forget them. Says Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, Kavanas Yosef Haisa Shetzliach Lashkiach Me'atzma Masha Asu Lo'achiv Vayizat Nisoyen Kasher Ma'od Lahabit Raka Lo'asu Lashkoach Has Koma Shena'asa Lo Kidei Lahodos Lashem Yisbarach Shetzliach Lashkoach Kras Shem Beno Menashe Kidei Lizkor Chesed Lashem Yisbarach Lizkor Halash Lizkor Ba'avar He didn't forget his family. You know what he forgot? This is an unbelievable insight of Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. He says, we human beings are given a gift. It's called selective memory. Selective memory is an unbelievable gift. We don't have to remember and hold on to all the hurt and the pain and the injury. We can choose to employ selective memory. We can choose to focus only on the positive and to have nostalgia for the good and to let go of that which hurt or that which harmed. That's Nashani. It seems to me that if you name your son, thank you for letting me forget, then you probably haven't forgotten. Every time to use his name, Menashe, he said, I forgot everything about my childhood and my upbringing, come for dinner. I forgot everything about my brothers and my father, did you do your homework yet? Every time he called him Menashe, he was invoking Menashe Kinashani. So it says Rabbi Salanter, he didn't forget. Who would want to forget? Who could ever forget? I, I, as a rabbi, do a lot of funerals. And the hardest funerals are for people who held out to reunite with a mother or a father or a sibling who passed away, and that person passed away without their having reconciled. Because no matter how much a person says that they had given up, that they had moved on, that they had had closure, that they had become comfortable with the fact that they were not in touch, we're not designed to ever be okay not having contact with a mother or a father or a sibling. Maybe on the surface, maybe years of therapy and thousands of dollars of therapy and lots of Botox treatments, maybe we convince ourselves that we're okay with the fact that we're no longer in touch with the mother, the father, the sibling. However, inside, somewhere deep inside, we're still holding out, we're still longing. And it's terribly, terribly, traumatically painful when that person dies and now the individual realizes it can't ever happen. It can't ever happen. So when Yosef says, Menashe ki nashani elokim, I name my son that I forgot. You don't name your son I forgot if you forgot. You don't even think about it to name your son that you forgot. If you forgot, you're not thinking about it. And so you don't name your son. Imagine that brisk speech. Yosef, as you're chomping down on the bagels and locks in Egypt. Yosef, tell us why you named him Menashe. He grabs the microphone at the bris. Well, let me tell you about my childhood and why I named him Menashe. I named him Menashe ki nashani elokim. I named him, thank you Hashem for letting me forget. You'll notice, Hevra, here in Egypt, you'll notice that I, I don't have any family here for the bris. You might have noticed. I've never had family visit me yet. Well, let me tell you. Ah, I forgot about them. And I named my son, I forgot about them. That's not at all what's going on, says Rav Salanter. Yosef is modeling for us selective memory. Selective memory. We have the capacity to focus not on the hurt, the harm, the pain. That's not to say that we shouldn't try to recon reconcile and work it out. We shouldn't bury it or suppress it or pretend it's not there. We should try to work it out. But do we want to hold ourselves back? Do we want to become paralyzed and debilitated by the thoughts and the feelings of the hurt? Or can Hashem Elokim? Do we say, Hashem, thank you for selective memory. Thank you for the gift of selective memory. You know who else practiced selective memory? Hashem, in the Navi, when he says, Hashem, Oh, I remember our journey through the Midbar. You remember how amazing it was? You never complained, and you never quetched, and you were so grateful to me, and we were so in love, and our trek and our trail through the desert. You remember how beautiful it was? And you'll read the Navi and say, What? Did I read the same Sefer about Midbar as Hashem? You remember how amazing it was? What are you talking about? The answer is Hashem practiced selective memory and he has a perfect impeccable memory. Yet he chooses to use selective memory. We often have the opposite. We have the inverse problem. Psychologists actually talk about this. We don't remember the good. We only remember the pain. We practice selective memory in the wrong direction. So at a ratio of five to one, someone's been good to us, been there for us, been kind to us, been loyal to us, showed up for us, but one time they hurt us. And all we remember is the one time 
and we've utterly purged, we've utterly forgotten, we've utterly, utterly deleted all the good they've done at a ratio of 100 to 1. But all we remember is the one hurt, the one remark, the one, the one failure to get back to an email. That's what we hold on to. That's what we hold. We have the inverse selective memory. But Yosef, he names him Benasha, and he teaches us how we can use selective memory in the positive. Yosef sees his brothers. Fast forward, Parak Ben Malaf, Pasuk Zayin. Sorry, Parak Ben Bey is Pasuk Zayin. There's a famine in the land. The only way the brothers will survive, they go down to Egypt and they have to go find the, they have to go to the secretary of the economy and wait in line, excuse me, in order to qualify for their food. The brothers of Yosef come by and they bow down twice to him. Says Rav Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev. Says the Heilige Kedushas Levi. Let's keep reading a little bit more. They come and they bow down. Yosef sees his brothers and wow. Can you imagine the adrenaline rush? What went through his mind? He's been away for all these years. Thinks he's abandoned, forgotten, will never be reunited or reconciled. He has these dreams in the back of his mind, but there's nothing about his life that indicates that they're going to come true. And all of a sudden, he's online giving out coupons, giving out food, giving out welfare, giving out whatever he's giving out. And all of a sudden, online, Vayaki Reim. Now he sees people familiar. All of a sudden, he sees his brothers. I don't care how old you are. I don't care, Faye, if you've read this 90 times, which would be impressive because it would mean you read it when you were a few months old. But it's still the most exciting narrative in the Torah. No? It doesn't matter how many times and how much you know how it ends, it's still gewaldic to read every year. So what happens? He recognizes them, but he acted like a stranger. He acted like a stranger towards them, and he spoke very harshly with them. And he says, where are you from? Oh, we come from Canaan to buy food. He recognizes them, which we just saw a minute ago. Why are we repeating it? And despite his talking to them, they don't recognize. Somebody from, I forget where, maybe Israel. Through the beauty of technology, and I count myself so lucky to live in this time, in this place, not only to get to study with you every week who are in person, but so privileged that people around the world were able to listen together and they WhatsApp and email and text great questions that make you think. So someone asked me, last week Yosef looks in the mirror sees the image, the Mustayukno of Aviv, of his father, and that's what gave him the fortitude and the courage, the conviction, not to, in fact, give in to the seduction of Ashish Potiphar. He looked so much like his father that when he saw himself in the mirror, he saw the image of his father. If he looked so much like his father, this individual asked me, why didn't his brothers recognize him? Why didn't his brothers recognize him? So I answered, I don't know, I didn't look it up, I didn't see whether anyone talks about it, but the simple answer to me would be, because when he was in Potiphar's home, he still had not risen to the position of viceroy. Maybe in the position of viceroy, maybe there's some garb that you wear. Maybe there's something about your appearance which is different. Maybe he hadn't, like me, gotten the hair plugs or colored his beard. And so he looked different. They didn't recognize him. It could also be, I didn't see anyone talk about this. It could be, and this would make sense, that the brothers were so consumed by their hunger pangs that they didn't even notice anything else. Right in front of them was their brother, who maybe Yosef was recognizable, but that doesn't mean that they had the, 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 the headspace to recognize him. Remember the Chassam Sofer said last week, we quoted the Chassam Sofer last week, if Yosef saw the image of his father and that kept him from sinning, why didn't the brothers see the image of their father and keep them from sinning? And you remember what we answered? When a person is filled with anger or rage, their judgment is clouded, their vision is blurry, they can't even see what's right in front of them. So similarly here, when a person is, is, is hungry, struggling with a famine, when a person's in a pandemic and they've turned inward, they're suffering a plague, and they're only thinking about themselves, they can't even see what's right in front of them. Blumenthal shared with me, I forgot who it was, a chassid Rebbe last week. You remember they throw them in the pit and they go eat? Yeah. And Chazal are critical of them. He's suffering and struggling in a pit with snakes and scorpions, and you're sitting down to all-you-can-eat buffet at the Chinese. What is going on over here? So Rabbi Blumenthal shared with me a makor. We're already out of time, or I'd read it to you inside. It's Kavaldic. He says, don't be critical of the, of, the, of the brothers. There's such a thing called 
You ever get hangry? Hangry is when you're really hungry, so you have no patience with someone, you snap at them, you're quick to them, you're not yourself because you're hangry. Hungry, angry. You're, hu- you're angry. The brothers thought, Let's, maybe we're just hangry. Let's have lunch and revisit this, what we do with him. They ate lunch and they still decided he's got to go. But they knew it wasn't coming from a position of being hangry. So maybe here they're hangry again. Maybe here they come down to Mitzrayim. They're there because of a famine. They're suffering, they're struggling. They had the long journey, the long uh, trip. And uh, maybe, they, maybe Yosef Taka was recognizable, but they were so consumed with themselves that they didn't bother to recognize him. So, And then, he remembers the dreams. Says the Kedusha's Levi of Levi Yitzchak This is so sad. I had so many more things to tell you, but we're going to have to end off here. Says, What is the Torah telling us when it says, He made himself into a stranger to them? Yosef. How do you understand or interpret why Yosef would make himself look like a stranger? Why would he conceal himself? Wouldn't he want to reveal himself? Wouldn't he want to say, hey, it's me, Yosef! So the easy answer is, they tried to kill him once, maybe they'll try to kill him again. But that's not a good answer. Why? He's much more powerful than they. He, he's got an army. You think Yosef's giving out food without Marines standing on both sides of him? Without secret service devoted to him? Yosef is much more powerful. He's not afraid of his life. That can't be the reason. Why doesn't he reveal himself? You have to imagine he's been longing and desperate. According to Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, he's practiced selective memory. He barely even remembers what they did to him. He only longs to be reunited with them. This is the one who last week, all he wants is to be with his brothers. Why Why in the world would he make himself into a stranger? Okay, we'll end here. Just joking, I'll tell you the answer. <laughs> Tell you the answer of the Kedusha slave. There are many answers. But this is what Rav Levi Yitzchak says. He says, this is evidence of the righteousness and the greatness of Yosef. Tzidkas Yosef. Yosef remembered his dreams. That's the next puzzle. Very next puzzle. Is Vayizkor. He remembers his dreams. And in his dreams, what happens? The brothers bow down to him. Yosef and his brothers had a bet. He had this dream and his brother said, that will never come true. Yosef said, this is my dream, it's from Hashem. I guarantee it's going to come true. And they said, you want to bet? And I don't know if they did a pinky promise, or I don't know exactly how they did this bet, or what they bet for, but they had this enormous bet. They had this enormous competitiveness. And Yosef realizes in this moment that he won the bet. The brothers are here, and they're bowing down because they need food, they're hungry. And what happens when you told someone that they've lost the bet? When they're willing to bet their life savings, they're willing to bet their mother's life, their father's life, they're willing to bet everything. That's how sure they are. When a person realizes they lost a bet that they were certain they would win, it's devastating. It's devastating. And Yosef wanted to spare his brothers that pain, that devastation. If they realized the one who they were bowing down to was in fact Yosef, it would have been very difficult, very painful for them. So again, I would say this is also a continuation of the altar of Kelm's insight. You think Yosef stopped and said, who, who, has the, who has the mindset to stop and say, hmm, it's my brothers all these years, should I reveal myself, should I? If you had to stop and think about it, he could never hold back from revealing himself. It's only because his instinct, he had been conditioned, he had been taught, he had been raised by parents who taught him to try to spare the pain of others. So in that moment, instinctively, intuitively, in super speed, he realizes, my dream is coming true. And if I tell them right now, while they're starving, while they're famished, if I tell them right now, as they're bowing down, that in fact, I won, I was right, that's gonna be unbearably painful. I could never cause pain, not only to anyone else, but certainly not to my brothers. 
he didn't want to cause them that pain, and that's what was going on. And that's also why he went so far, so concerned with he was sparing the pain of his brothers that he did not. Not only did he not reveal himself, even though that meant that cost him telling his father. Because you know what would happen? Let's play this out. Yosef says to the brothers, Hey guys, I won. Na 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 kish kish, I won. In the bet. Here I am. I rose to greatness. You're bowing down to me. You rely on me for food. And guess what? Go tell dad who won. You know what Yaakov's going to do? He's going to say, I also won. I was right to give him the colored coat. I was right to favor him. I was right to buy into his dreams when no one else did. And all it's going to do is create further division, further divisiveness, further tension, further conflict. He understood that his father made a mistake to spoil him to begin with. And he understood that he had contributed to that divisiveness to begin with. And remember all he wants is all he wants is to be at peace and reunited and fit in and belong. So at great, great, enormous personal pain, because it means he's still not reunited with his father, but at great personal pain, he's patient. And he says, I need to wait for the right time in the right way, in the right place, and I'll reveal myself and will reconcile and reunite them. But if I do it now, if I do it in this way, in this time, in this place, it'll only divide. It'll cause pain to them, It'll cause my father to react the wrong way. And therefore, and therefore he has the presence of mind to not reveal himself, to make himself a stranger to them, all an expression of his greatness and his righteousness to spare them unnecessary pain. I'm in pain because there was a lot more to talk about. But we did say some nice ideas about Hanukkah. Wishing everybody a very happy birthday. 30 more times to read Parshas Miketz. I hope you're ready to go. All right. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay holy, everybody.